Hello and welcome back once more to Ask the Ed, the regular podcast full of great advice and Ed 3's tips on frugal living. So, straight into the questions with one from the Man United site and bring back Seagull asks, Hi Ed, any inside info on when the Glazers are planning to cash in on United? When and if they do, who would you see as potential new owners? Thanks in advance, bring back Seagull. As far as I'm aware, those plans to sell the club have been put aside for now. The family have a nice little earner on their hands, so they have no need to sell. If they did, it is difficult to see who could afford to buy the club anyway. It is more likely that we'd have to sell it off in bits through the stock market, I expect. Either that, or it'd have to come in the form of a leveraged buyout once again, which, as we know, reduces the amount of money the club actually has to spend. Now on to Bristol Blue 74 from the Everton site, who asks... Ed, if you could bring three Everton legends into today's squad to compete in the modern game, who would they be and why? Looking at the current Everton squads and where the biggest needs are, and it has to be Neville Southall, Pickford is a calamity keeper, while Southall is one of the best keepers ever to play the game. Having him at the back would totally transform the team. He would have that back line organised, which is a bit of a problem in De Silva, that lack of organisation. Southall was exceptional at organising his defence. We would cure that. With the defence now much more solid, goals are the key. Well, much more solid if they added Southall, I mean. Goals are the key, and there are very few in the history of the game that even stand comparison with Dixie Dean. Keane would learn so much from working with a player like that. The final one is the tough one. A centre-back is something the club is short of, so I would have liked to have picked one of them, but I have to say Howard Kendall instead. Not just one of your best ever players, not just the most successful Everton manager ever, but a truly nice man to go with it. Kendall would be an inspiration in the current side. The next question is from Chelsea fan Gianfranco Golo wants to know, if you had a ticket to the best football match ever, what stadium and 22 players would you pick? This is a very subjective answer, but for me, there's only one stadium it can be to watch a football match in. There's lots of stadiums that I'd like to visit, I'd like to see, but if I could only choose one place to watch a football match in, it has to be Anfield. That, for me, is the the, the pinnacle of football. On players as well, it would be subjective, but for me, I don't think throwing the greatest players into a team together makes for the best match. The best teams play together regularly and become used to each other's game. That's why I would rather put two of the great teams together. And for the first one, I can't look past the 1970 Brazil team. Against them, I'd love to watch any of the magical Magyars, the Dutch side with Cruyff that were runners-up in the World Cup, or any of the great club sides. However, I'm going to kick the Liverpool team that Dalglish and Paisley put together with Barnes and Beardsley. Maybe get the chance for Barnes to show his Maracana goal was no fluke. And I'm not sure if I pronounced Maracana right. And even now I've just looked up how to pronounce it, I'm still none the wiser. Then there is one from Wire on the Arsenal site who asks, Does the big spending by Arsenal this season mean big time belt tightening next season if they don't make the Champions League? Well the problem they have is that while they do have a large amount of cash in the bank, it is not accessible cash, so to speak. I believe it is being used to offset mortgage payments on the stadium, and Stan Kroenke himself has leveraged it in the past for lower-cost loans for buying other properties. So dipping into it could cause huge consequences for the club in the long term. Josh Kroenke has taken a risk by spending now before the money is coming, but it's not yet going to put the club in, any, in a position of any danger. It just means the spending could be more restricted in future if Champions League qualification is not achieved. 
It shouldn't need sales to keep the club in the back. Black. But it would just cut down on the club's future buying power. So I suppose it depends on how you view big time belt tightening. I wouldn't say that was big time. It's just a small small tweak to the pattern. Now on to our very own Neggy from the Liverpool site, Negative Red Walter, who has a question which is, I would like to hear Mr Ed's opinion on who the most influential person in football for the last generation is. Myself and friends came up with, came up with Roman Abramovich. Would Ed agree or find a better candidate? Well, I can't answer for Mr Ed. I would think that old talking horse died years ago. But I would say, personally, you are looking in completely the wrong place. I would say it was Sepp Blatter. The game is truly corrupt and that stems from him. The likes of Roman and other owners have a tiny impact on the game by comparison. Simon Morris 10 of the Manchester United site has a tough question here for me. He is asking, who is the best Premiership team of the modern era? Arsenal Invincibles, City 2017-2018, Liverpool 2005 or United 1999? Well, I can immediately rule out Liverpool from 2005. They were not that good and it truly was a miracle in Istanbul that a team with Jimmy Traore starting, among many other players that were not very good, won the Champions League. They were not even the best side Rafa had. It was a couple of years later when Liverpool came second under him that were his best side, with Fernando Torres and Gerrard together up top. Even that team does not compare to the other three though. The others are truly great sides and I'm very torn. Um, City set a points record total, but there were so many teams that just rolled over for them that it means it is not as obvious a choice as it should be. They say you're only as good as the teams you beat as well, which also goes against them as no one really competed with them. Which is why I would probably say their season last season was a better performance. They won it under genuine pressure. United of 99 was a fantastic team that won almost everything, but I'm going to go for Arsenal just, and I mean just, because they had to beat an excellent United side to win it. Though if you ask me the same question on another day, you might have a completely different answer. And as it is so close, I could easily be swayed by someone else pointing out things I've missed about each season. On to another question from the Man United site, from Damo Frano, or Damo Frano, who says, Hi Eds, new to this site, but I've been an avid reader for years. Do you think United will have new owners anytime soon? Been lots of rumours, but nothing seems to be happening. Cheers. Well, it seems the Glazers are a big topic on this site at the moment, but I don't believe the Glazers have any interest in selling. They're happy pocketing a nice regular return for no risk and little effort on their part. Belfast Wolf from the Wolves site asks, Do you ever think Nuno will make Traore a footballer? 36, 37 games, one goal, three assists, I think I read. At the Cruz game, he was in danger of tripping over his own feet. He scored one more goal than Patricio. I have to be honest, I'm not convinced he will ever be consistent as a footballer because he has trained himself to such a high pitch as a sprinter that he's always on the verge of a niggly injury. So he will always be in and out of the side and unable to get going. Added to that, he just runs too fast to control his feet properly. I remember years ago, Ryan Giggs used to be terrible at crossing until the coach at Man United finally got him to understand that he needed to stop sprinting before crossing or shooting, etc. When you are sprinting, you are not fully under your own control. It is impossible to maintain good technique and form consistently. Unfortunately, Traore is not very intelligent in terms of learning on the coaching pitches. He doesn't listen to what he is told. Barcelona's youth coaches were constantly in his ear about running rather than sprinting before putting in a final 
ball, but he just wants to go flat out. It was the same at Borough. No matter what he was told, he would not listen. Nuno is last chance saloon for him to make it at the top end, and he has listened to him about some things, but this one lesson is just not getting through, and it means he will never be the footballer he should be, as he does have the basic technique to be outstanding. So I just don't see him ever being anything more than an impact sub to hammer tired legs with. Sevi Kev 67 from the Celtic site asks if there has ever been a goal scored direct from a throw-in. Well, as you can't score direct from a throw-in, I really hope not. If a defender throws it directly into his own net, it is a corner. If an attacker throws it directly into the net, then it is a goal kick. I don't know of any ever being allowed, and it would be a mistake if it was. Mind, when you consider the refs don't always know the rules, such as the goal that hit a Liverpool beach ball and went in against Sunderland, which should have been disallowed, I suppose it could have happened somewhere. But like I said, it would have to be a bad mistake by the referee if it did. LC from the Forest site asks, Hi Edwan, except for the occasional time when head coaches and managers have instant success, how long would you say it should take a team to play a quick pass in positive approach football with mostly inexperienced players? Well, a lot does depend on how well the players know each other. If they know each other's games well, it is a lot easier. Usually, though, you have to be looking at 10 games or so as the players need time to understand when and where teammates will run. Getting to know whether a player will look to play an early ball or take three or four touches first helps a lot. What does help is getting good results early as confidence helps players play better. So a bit of luck can change things massively. But I would say about 10 games should be enough to see clear progress. Bit of a change now, and LC also asks a question about Formula One. Hi, Ed One. How do you feel about different countries for whatever reason changing F1 venues? And how many races do you think should be held in an F1 season? And what do you think about the current point systems? Is it a positive move or question mark? The changing venues depends on the reason. If it's somewhere that is better or just as good to host a race, then it's a good thing. If not, then, you know, I prefer the iconic tracks such as Spa to stay as the races, you know, to keep the races there rather than move them to some new build. Sometimes you have to change. Nürburgring, great track that it is, would be a terrible track for the modern F1 car, though Hockenheim in its modern version is not much copy either. It was much better with the massive straight. As for the number of races, I would like a few more personally. I know drivers are moaning they have too many, but they're not racing anything like as much as they as used to happen. F1 drivers used to race in all sorts of other championships as well as F1. Now they only race F1, so they're not exactly being pushed to their limits, especially as the cars do so much of the work anyway now. I think 25 or 26 would be much better and give teams that start slowly more time to recover and catch up. Maybe even more, I don't know. But as for the point system, I prefer the 10 drivers getting points from the old 6 drivers. But I'm not convinced that the f- this fastest lap extra point is a good thing. It has not promoted good reason and j- good racing even and doesn't seem to have any real reason to stay for my life, from, from my thinking. A question from Paul EFC1975 off the Everton site who asks, When do you think Everton will win a trophy? I don't do predictions as I'm very superstitious and would hate to bring bad luck on Everton. Though really, I, I would. Ed25 would never speak to me again. Though then again, that might not be a bad thing. So I'm going to say this season, I think you have a chance of at least a good run in the Cup. So why not win it? Another Everton site question comes from Big C, who asks, Hi Ed, the first question is concerning the alleged signing of Jesus Rainier. 
Has it happened? And will he just come over when he turns 18 in January? And if so, how does that work? Rework permit, etc. And didn't we get banned from signing young players after reporting ourselves for breaches of the rules? And secondly, secondly, that's about eight questions in the first bit. But anyway, okay. Secondly, is the biggest lie in the world the phrase easy peel lid? I know the signing of Jesus Rainier was reported on some websites, but no contacts are being lodged with FIFA's TMS system. So right now it can't be classed as being done. Even if terms have been agreed, someone could still come in and usurp it. Any move would have to wait until he is 18 in January, yes. As for the work permit, it depends on if he is eligible for an EU passport or not, as to whether he will require one. If he does, you just need to achieve a set number of points to get him one. I've forgotten what the number is off the top of my head, but it is clearly set up and the club will know what they need to do to achieve it, so they will have a plan in place if they sign him. It might mean paying him a bigger fee, paying a bigger fee for him or um, giving him a bigger contract than they would otherwise want to, but there are ways to ensure they get the points. As for signing young players... That applies to academy players, which means anyone over 18 is fine, such as Rainier will be in January. As for the biggest lie, you might be onto something there, but I have a second suggestion. The label may contain nuts on a bag of peanuts. Peanuts are not technically nuts, but legumes and grow underground. See, bit of knowledge for you there. The next question from Jürgen Meister from the Liverpool site shows how far behind I must have got on the questions as I think it dates from just after the Community Shield, judging by it. So apologies and I'll try and catch up over the next few days. JM asks, I've just watched Guardiola's post-match press conference and I quote, They are going to win more because they are better than us. Now I'm not trying to take this out of context. He was talking about winning jewels on the pitch, not trophies. But the point stands, are we a better team than City? And do we need to beat them to silverware to prove it? Well, until Liverpool beat City in the league standards at the end of the season, they really can't be classed as a better team. Much as I'd love to agree with you on that, that is the measure of who is the best and the whole reason we have the league system in place. Pep is just trying to put pressure on Liverpool and off his team, really, when he makes comments like that. He does a lot of this throughout the season because he feels it helps his team perform better and it seems to work so far for him. Another Liverpool site question is from Mark P08, sorry, 08, who asks, Apart from Brandt, can you tell me a player we had serious interest in that chose not to sign for Liverpool? Well, it depends on how you judge it and how far back you want me to go, really. I would assume you don't mean this summer, as Brandt was a couple of summers ago now. Also, how do you term serious interest? With that kind of situation, the first step in modern football is to ask the agent if the player would consider signing for the club. That is not necessarily a sign the club is going to make a bid for them. In fact, more often than not, even when a player is interested in the move, clubs never make an offer on a player they have made that kind of inquiry about. It's only a tiny portion of them that they do. That's why you so often read tales of players saying such and such showed an interest in me in this summer, when it could mean nothing other than assessing available options just in case. Such as Pepe, for instance, who signed for Arsenal this summer, Liverpool were interested in him if Salah were to leave, but had no interest in him as a backup due to his reputation for being difficult if left out of the team. Would you class that as serious interest? Personally, I would say that a club only has a serious interest in players that want to sign for it nowadays. That is one of the things Klopp specifies in players is their desire to play for LFC. So any player inquired about that wasn't keen on the move would be immediately removed from the list of potential targets. 
unlike Dybala and Man United, who still tried to make a move happen, even though the player was not interested in going there. BSE Red off the Forest site asks, apart from Billy Davis' two stints, what are the figures in days that our Nottingham Forest managers have lasted over the last 10 years? Well, I'm not sure how good, how, how interesting this list is going to be to listen to, but in reverse order of when they manage Forest, here goes. Martin O'Neill, 166 days. Aitza Karanka managed 368. Gary Brazil, just seven days. Mark Warburton, 292 days. Gary Brazil, 57 days. Philip Montagnier got 201 days. Paul Williams, who I'd completely forgotten was in charge for a bit, was given 60 days. Dougie Friedman was given an enormous, by comparison, 405 days. Stuart Pearce got 215 days. Gary Brazil, yes, him again, 97 days. Sounds like I'm reading that, you know, punishments, jail time, doesn't it, really? Anyway, then just three days for Rob Kelly. Alex McLeish was given just 39 days. Sean O'Driscoll only got 160 days. Steve Cottrell got 272 days. Rob Kelly, another 10 days. And finally, Steve McLaren's Brolly only protected him for 93 days. There's a lot of managers there. And now on to Rangers. A question from As1974 is Woodford... Oh, what the flip has happened to Rangers since pre-season? We are playing awful. Said it last week. This game tailor-made for JJ. Yes, he's not the greatest, but he is direct and has lots of play- pace. Plus, he played last season on this pitch. Very dire. What silly days in the season, mate. The only thing that matters early on is the results in gaining match sharpness. Pre-season not really relevant. It's just about fitness and teams do not play with the same intensity against you. And they do not play with a full-on tactical plan to stop you as they are busy working on their own fitness plans. It's a totally different ball game, basically. Once you get into the season, teams in Scotland are not going to take on either Celtic or Rangers. They are concentrating on stopping them play. It takes time for the team to develop their style to get through deep blocking sides. Celtic have had a fairly settled side for years, so they've become accustomed to working with each other to overcome these issues. Rangers, on the other hand, have been rebuilt over the last couple of years and are still growing as a team. A good recent example of this is Liverpool under Klopp, who only developed the res- the ability to pick up results against deep defences last season. Up until then, they struggled to break them down. So it's not a quick fix situation, even when you've got money to spend. And finally, it's a question from Discount Dave from the Man United site, who wants to know if VAR will ever work and if England should have a winter break, which he thinks is being put in place now anyway. Well, I've said many times that while the PGMOL are in charge of the system, VAR is not going to work. They change their interpretation of the rules constantly to protect their members when they have made clear and obvious error. I can't see how their use of VAR will be any better, especially as there are not enough referees for the top flight to cover a full programme of games and the VAR system at once. At some point, they're going to have to use officials that are not seen as either ready or good enough for the Premier League to man the VAR. It's a mess because they're approaching it in the wrong way. The VAR operators should be specialists in operating VAR. They should not be trained as referees, but as VAR operators. They should be kept separate as a different skill and should be treated as such. I can only see more bizarre decisions like the ones at the West Ham Man City game with one goal ruled out for offside and another one given when the one given looked more offside than the one choked off. Even looking at the pictures they used, I have no idea how they came to the decisions. As for the winter break, why is it needed? 
think this season finished three weeks too early last season. Why not just spread out the games a bit more and using those three weeks to give players more time off during the season? You know, to have them so they don't play the games so closely clustered together. The ridiculous claim that they are not they are too tired to play well gets debunked regularly as English sides do well in the European competition all the time. The whole nonsense claim of needing the winter break is that it would help English clubs do better in Europe. But all four finalists last season were English teams, so it doesn't look like they need any help. It's messing around once again with things that are not broken and do not need fixing like they did when they created the transfer window. Then they will wonder how they've how to fix all the problems it will create that they you know, that they've created by breaking something that was already fine. Such as when the bad weather hits outside of the break and suddenly they have no spare fixture slots for matches that need rearranging. Where are you gonna put them? The English League is the most watched in the world for a reason. It works as it is. Changing it to make it more like the less watched leagues makes absolutely no sense. So there we have it. Another Ask the Ed podcast for you. Keep sending in your questions and thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed it.